Welcome to Who Are You? The Life Lessons of Sports with your host, Rob Elwood. Join us as we open the door and take an unforgettable journey to unlock the full power of sports on and off the field. Listen to personal stories and reflections from incredible leaders who are sure to move and inspire you. So listen and enjoy another episode of Who Are You? The Life Lessons of Sports. Things look pretty good. I got a family, and I'm graduating. I'm going to get a job, and I did get a job teaching and coaching in Madison Heights, Michigan, at first at the junior high level, and um, I, I, I probably was overpaid. But I, I, my first year was four thousand three hundred dollars for the year, and that included that included coaching two sports. So now with two kids, a third on the way, and you know we all like to eat. We had a problem. I was never, ever a wrestling fan. That was never my deal. I was a football guy. And a friend of mine was a huge wrestling fan, and he talked me into calling the local promoter, Bert Ruby. And uh, meanwhile, when he had me call him, we were on a, uh, was on a mission trying to find a part-time job. And I was looking for a job as a bouncer in the bar. About two o'clock in the morning, he told me in calling Bert Ruby, and I, I want to be a wrestler. I called Bert. He answered the phone. He invited me over the next day. Now, this is crazy because I woke him up, I'm sure. They were looking for somebody. And the funny thing is, I was a football guy, but most of my life was really, from, from high school on, was really built around fighting. <laughs> Okay, Who Are You Nation? I am extremely honored to introduce our special guest today, Jim Myers. Jim, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Great. Where uh, are you receiving this phone call from right now? Where are you? Mm, I'm having a real tough life, you know, in Cocoa Beach, Florida. <laughs> Sounds it. <laughs> Cocoa Beach, Florida, beautiful place. Uh, probably hot and muggy this time of year, I'm guessing. Well, on the ocean, it's always a breeze. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. You get in the ocean much, Jim? Oh, just walk out my door. There you go. Wow, making making me jealous. Jim, I appreciate you coming on today. Lots to talk about, and I am very honored to have you on. And Jim, I always like to get started with interviews here to go back in time and go to the place it all started, back around 10, 12, 14 years old, whatever time resonates with you, and really have you paint the picture of what life was like, both family, academics, and athletics, as we talk about the life lessons of sports here. Would you mind sharing? No, not at all. I guess it goes all the way back to uh, <laughs> kindergarten, the first grade, maybe. Um, <clears throat> my, my parents thought I was pretty bright until they went to school and they found out I was a total lost. Um, I had a great memory, but I was also very dyslexic. And this was in the... Uh, 40s and 50s before they knew what uh, dyslexic was. So I immediately had a learning disability. And in those days, as, as probably now too, <clears throat> if you had a learning disability and you went up to the board or to the front of the room, you tried to read or write, and you couldn't, people laughed at you and made fun. So that was the beginning for me. And all through elementary school, I, I tried to disappear. I you know, had books like Run, Run, spot run i couldn't read it and nobody knew why because this is way before anyone had a clue of what dyslexic was so uh 
they moved me along to the next grade and to the next grade and kids continued to laugh at me because I was bigger than the other kids. Uh, my parents had told me never to fight. And my dad had lost an eye in a fight. And just, you don't fight somebody, you know, going to hurt somebody, da, da, da. So now when you're considered dumb and kids pick on you and you don't fight, you kind of run home crying if they pick on you, you become a big, dumb baby. And so I, I went to elementary school that way. And uh, I hated every minute of it. Yeah, learned nothing. And uh, when I got into high school, nothing changed. I still didn't know what dyslexic was. I still couldn't read or write very well. And uh, the teachers didn't know what to do with me, so they would take role and send me to the gym. If you're going to the gym every day, three or four hours, five hours a day, you should become a pretty good athlete. And uh, I did. I had, I had a good size and uh, good strength. And uh, I developed pretty good agility. So by the time I was ready to graduate from high school, I was a, a very good athlete. I, I lettered in uh, four sports for four years in a row. So I won 16 varsity letters, which is a rarity. <clears throat> the biggest gift I got out of high school in uh, my junior year, they had back then what they called Sadie Hawkins Day dances. And this is where the girls would invite the boys. And I never dated. I mean, I, I'd run it and grow it. I didn't have much, you know, I was pretty, it's pretty uh, despondent, really, I guess would be the word. But these four or five girls that were kind of like the queens of the school, you know, the homecoming queens and the cheerleaders and the yearbook and all that, the same group that did everything. And they were together, and they, at that time they called me Moose. So they were daring each other to invite Moose Myers to the Sadie Hawkins Day dance. My wife, uh, Pat Myers, took the dare. So 50 years later, she's still paying for that dare. <laughs> but it was a, it's just like it, it was like it was meant to be. I mean, she's a wonderful angel for me. Yeah. And so we go to Michigan State, totally unprepared, totally unprepared, uh, in every phase uh, of, uh, that you can imagine, socially, uh, academically, uh, athletically, I had that covered. So I, I never played it down at Michigan State. But Duffy Doherty was very loyal to me, the football coach, and uh, a lot of good things happened there. Um, you know, my goal was to play football. That didn't happen. And uh, I flunked a lot of classes just because of just different decisions and stupidity. Uh, Michigan State was a land-grant school. You're required to take an ROTC class, and I was in an ROTC class. It was raining out, and this junior, I guess he was, uh, <clears throat> told me to wipe the mud off my feet with a handkerchief. I said, I'm not doing that. And he got in my face, and my eyes started twitching. I knew something was going to happen. And uh, and the next thing I know, he was in the mud on his butt, and I told him, I think, take your handkerchief out and wipe your, <laughs> your butt off. Well, I flunked that class. And... <laughs> That class couldn't be made up again until the following fall, which made me ineligible my sophomore year. So I lost that year. A year later, I'm in a wrestling class. Emily Collins, the wrestling coach, was teaching it. And there was a senior a good friend, Rennie O'Brien, a football player. And he never came to class. He was flunking the class. And he came in. He needed the class for the credit to graduate. So he was begging to Finley. And he said, well, you, you wrestle Myers, you beat him, and we'll take care of you. So hearing that, I had my first uh, 
predetermined match. Uh, I let uh, uh, Brandy beat me, <laughs> and Finley was hot. So he uh, he said, okay, smart guy. I'll give him your grade, and you get his grade. So I flunked wrestling. <laughs> oh, no. And uh, made it up, and I had to take it again, so that should have made me uh, learn better how to perform, anyhow, I guess. But I flunked wrestling, so it just was a you know, disaster. Meanwhile, I had a daughter when I started college. I had another son coming while I was in college. And when I graduated in 1961, I had another one on the way. So things looked pretty good. I got a family, and I'm graduating. I'm going to get a job. And I did get a job teaching and coaching in Madison Heights, Michigan, at first at the junior high level. And um, I, I, I probably was overpaid. But I, I, my first year was $4,300 for the year. And that, inclu- that included coaching two sports. So now with two kids, a third on the way. And, you know, we all like to eat. <laughs> we had a problem. Yeah. I was never, ever a wrestling fan. That was never my deal. I was a football guy. And a friend of mine was a huge wrestling fan. And he talked me into calling the local promoter, Bert Ruby. And meanwhile, when he had me call him, we were on a uh, was on a mission trying to find a part-time job. And I was looking for a job as a bouncer in the bar. And uh, uh, about 2 o'clock in the morning, he taught me in calling Bert Ruby. And I, I didn't want to be a wrestler. I called Bert. He answered the phone. He invited me over the next day. Now, this is crazy. Because I woke him up, I'm sure. They were looking for somebody. And the funny thing is, I was a football guy, but most of my life was really, from, from high school on, was really built around fighting. Because when I was in the, uh, well, jumping back to the elementary school, I was about the fourth grade, told you kids were picking on me. This one particular day, we lived across the street from an elementary school, and the kids wanted to bring some water. And I did, and after they drank their water, they dumped it on me. So I went home crying, naturally. My mother, who was about six foot and 230 pounds, said, okay, you're going to fight today. So I uh, go back. She takes me back. Jimmy's here to fight, and they come running, and I'm kind of crying because I've never been in a fight before. And the first guy there was Billy Gill. He was probably the uh, the bully of the bunch. He lasted about 15 seconds, and the next one was Bob, um, Bobby Hanya. Anyhow, we worked our way through the group after about, a minute and a half of written it. There was 15 kids. Most of them had left because they didn't want anything to do with me. So my first success, really, ever was fighting. Uh, so from that time on, starting elementary school, I, I was always looking for a fight. All through high school, the same way, and even into college. And uh, when I graduated and started coaching, that attitude had changed quite a bit, obviously. And uh, uh, it was a struggle. And then I, I, I started wrestling around Detroit. We decided that we'd put a mask on me and call me the student. So I'd wear a cap and gown from learning and a mask on because I didn't want the teachers or the kids to know or the administration didn't want anyone to know that I was wrestling professionally because it was kind of a, a dark area. Uh, and I started making a little bit of money, you know, $25, 30 a night, and a big night would be ninety dollars. That was a lot of money when you're only making four thousand three hundred for the year. So I really enjoyed that part of it. 
uh, didn't understand the, the the business at all. And when they took me to the gym and started showing me that it was more show than real, I was pretty aggravated. I thought they were challenging my integrity as an athlete. So I had a hard time with that until I learned the art of working the match, which took me about two years. And eventually I had a chance to go to the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Bruno Sammartino was the world's champion at the time, WWWF champion. And he'd come to Detroit with an entourage. They had spotted me. They had invited me to go back to Pittsburgh to wrestle Bruno. Well, when I went there, I had my cap and gown and my mask, and they did not want a, a mask man. I, I didn't want to use my real name. So one of the local wrestlers there, Johnny DeFazio, said, well, this is the Steel City. Let's call him Jim Steel. I said, I don't like Jim. Somebody else did George. And that part of my body is only 48 years old. I guess. <laughs> that's how the name got started. And then later on, because of the character, and I was a, a tough guy. I mean, legitimately a tough guy. And uh, I worked very, very stiff. And uh, the people started calling me an animal. So when I first went, uh, after one year in Pittsburgh, the next year I got a call and they wanted me to come to the Northeast for the WWWF. Uh, the whole deal there was all in the Northeast. And um, the funny thing, I probably wouldn't have gone, to be honest with you. I had a driver's training class that I was teaching in the summertime, and I was making about $8 an hour. And I needed the $8 an hour. That was my uh, local wrestling was, you know, pretty important to our income. The problem is I was wrestling all over the, the state in the area, and uh, I would be uh, have a football practice, say, at, at uh, get out at 5.30, 6 o'clock, have to drive to Muskegon, Michigan, which is 200 miles away. Uh, have to get there, and usually I was late, and then come back late that night and get up the next morning and teach again. Uh, so I'd get up at 7 and do the teaching. The coaching would be done at 5, 5.30. I'd get in the car and go somewhere and wrestle and get back uh, around 2 o'clock, 2.30 in the morning with a few beers and uh, – do it all over again. So it was really a pretty tough schedule. And uh, the bottom line is from that, uh, I uh, really was running the business, the hard knocks of the business. I like to say I never paid any uh, hard, hard, any dues, but those hours and that time thing was my dues. And by the time I went to Pittsburgh and became George Steele, I was pretty well schooled in the wrestling business. Uh, in the local area, we had some outstanding talent uh, that most people don't even know who they are, but they were just outstanding guys. And when I say that, when you're wrestling in one area for 10 years and you're not going all over the place, you've got to be a much better worker than the guys that are going from territory to territory. So a lot of these guys had jobs in the Detroit area, and they just wrestled in the Detroit area, and the business was pretty big for the times. So I was learning from the best. The name student really didn't work out. And when I went to the Northeast and they wanted me to wrestle, I didn't, I'd never wrestled without a mask on. So the first time I did that, I didn't know if I'd have facial expressions or what was going on. And when you wear a mask, you got to do your action with your body language and a lot of body motion. So I've always had, a, when I was wrestling, I always had a lot of body motion and uh, a beautiful face. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and so the, 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 I had the look and the, everything going with me at the time, and I was in great shape. 
physically, and uh, timing was just perfect. And when I hit the Northeast, I had a few matches with Bruno. And we started selling out the arenas, and at the uh, end of the first year, the local promoter was Vince McMahon Sr., who since passed away, I think, in, uh, in uh, the spring of 83. But he told me, I'm going to bring it back next year. And so just about every year after that, I was invited in the summertime to go to the Northeast. Now you're talking, you know, New York, Madison Square Gardens, and the other three big arenas in New York. And at that time, it was at Boston Gardens and uh, Philadelphia Arena, and later on the Spectrum. And so we had the large population, large arenas. And I would go in for the summertime, and basically most of my matches were the top stars, usually built around two or three matches in each town with Bruno Sammartino. And when they only see you lose to the champion now and then, uh, you stay pretty strong. So each summer they'd bring me back in and I'd have another run. And I was making at that time, that was huge money because uh, uh, in the NFL, if I had played in the NFL when I graduated from college, I'd have been making about $6,000 a year. Uh, these runs that I'm talking about now in the summertime, this is before the unions came into the uh, major sports, I was making fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 for three months and going back and teaching for a lot less. But my coaching and teaching is what I like to do. And uh, the wrestling was just a, it was a gift to me and my family. It worked out perfect. Uh, I later on uh, quit teaching in 1986 and went full-time at age 50, which is totally backwards. And I was a, the old uh, dinosaur running with the young bulls. They almost ran me to death. But uh, it, was, it was great. And I, I was uh, making a lot of money, and greed started taking over the night. So I quit teaching and went full-time for about five years. And then I became an agent after uh, after I quit wrestling. And the reason I quit wrestling is I came down with a disease of Crohn's. There's no cure for Crohn's. It's a horrible, nasty disease. I'm totally cured, so I guess I didn't really know what was going on at the time. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I beat it. Uh, when I was real sick, we moved here to... The doctor told me I had six months to live. That was 23 years ago. And... Uh, I found the Lord Jesus Christ, put him in my life, and uh, haven't looked back. We have the, we have a strong Michigan State Alumni Club here in, uh, in, in the Space Coast. My wife's a treasurer. I've been on the board for about 15 years, and uh, go green. We love the Michigan State Spartans. <laughs> and I have a very active uh, role with our with our church. Just, uh, we have a, it's a, uh, this is a funny story. When I was real sick, I, I shut down twice died on the table kind of thing and when I came out of the sick when I told my wife we need to go church shopping and we need to go to the Baptist church to eliminate it because as a kid that was proud of a Baptist and that was kind of rough at times so anyway we go to the first Baptist church in Merritt Island and uh, to eliminate it and uh, Pat and I are both teachers and the place was filled with young people what we didn't know God works in funny ways what we didn't know was they had a youth a singer from Australia giving her testimony that morning in a concert that night. And uh, so the kids were there to honor her. The following Tuesday, it was 9-11. So we go back to the same church. We are on the Space Coast and by the Kennedy Space Center. 
So they had a lot of military people there and uh, bending their knees and the hook was in. We joined the church and it's been a great run with the Lord ever since. And my health has been great. Uh, great things are happening all around us. Uh, uh, I, I wrote a book, uh, Animal. The basic reason, reason for writing that is I've been doing a lot of personal appearances and throwing out first pitches at different ballparks, including Fenway Park a couple of years ago when they were having their 100th year anniversary. Uh, so I was doing a lot of really great things, but with the book coming out and finishing that, that was kind of my swan song for a lot of things. I decided to quit traveling a lot because at 77 years old, you know, it's not easy no. traveling today. And uh, I've done just about everything I want to do, and God's been good, and financially we were able to to really relax, and that's kind of where I'm at now. Yeah, uh, it's, it's been a great run. And I, as I finished the book, this is what's really funny. A lot of this stuff was really egotistical. I thought, boy, I'm doing this. I'm coaching. I got I got through college. I did this. I got that. That. Oh, me, 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 and me, and me, and me, and me. It gets pretty puky and sickening. <laughs> but uh, when I when when I after I started writing the book, started looking back at my life through the rear view mirror of life, I saw how God was touching me way before I knew him. And when I finally made the uh, acceptance of Lord Jesus Christ as my personal savior, I really didn't think it was worthy because of the lifestyle I lived as a wrestler. And it's not the wrestling, it's the lifestyle of the guys that do it. It's all choices. I made a lot of bad choices. It's amazing that I'm alive. It's amazing that my wife is still with me. It's amazing that my family is so supportive, but God was with me all the way. And uh, the Holy Spirit was guiding me before I knew, knew what was going on. So, uh, it's just been a great run, and, and uh, uh, who would have thought? Yeah, well, it's quite a journey. I appreciate you sharing all the information, taking a lot of notes as you were speaking there. I do have a, some questions for you, if you don't mind answering. Um, yeah, of co- well, of course, uh, an audience would want to know today either <laughs> if she if she's really serious or, or in one of those just moods. Does your wife still call you Moose? She never did. There you go. Good. It was a girl said the combination after that. No, I was, no. no. <laughs> okay, good. But I graduated from high school. Everybody called me Moose. <laughs> there you go. And then, of course, another question, and I'd like to have fun on the show sometimes as well. Did you throw a strike at Fenway Park? Uh, I, I have an, uh, the original uh, flipper ball. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> and they, they throw fastballs. They throw curveballs. They, they throw uh, uh, sliders. What I do is I chew on the ball because George Steele was pretty well known for using turnbuckles. <laughs> yeah. So I chew on the ball till about half the half the lip <laughs> is hanging out of the ball, and I get about fifteen, twenty feet away, maybe yards from the catcher, and I just kind of throw it like a. I don't want to say girl because they're better than the boys anymore, <laughs> but like, like I just kind of throw it up there, and it's usually a strike. Yep. But it flutters, and people go nuts when they see that. They can't see this tour until I throw it. That's great. Well, with some, some of the things, thing. yeah, some of the things I've seen recently in the uh, Major League Baseball, uh, a half chewed ball—that's nothing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Umpires would let that slide these days. <laughs> no, that's that's good. Now I'm going to go back. You mentioned uh, in the journey here, starting off in first grade, and I and I did hear you loud and clear. But but when did it become apparent to you? I mean, first of all, I would say, do us all a favor. We hear the word dyslexia, and it's one of those words, you kind of, it's almost like Xerox, right? You you hear it, you never question it, you just go, oh, okay, and you keep going for the most part 
I would say the general public. What what is dyslexia? Number one, and then two. When did you really know that there's something that you could define? Right, that's something that was actually there that you could say. You know, I I just I'm not getting this. Um, dyslexia is when your vision, looking at numbers and letters, twists them around and maybe put them upside down, put them out of order, put them backwards. It's, it's just a, a disorder, a visual disorder. It's not a mental disorder. It's a visual disorder. And so I would see things differently than other people. And, and a, a lot of people that have dyslexia have gone through a living hell, as I did, but they're also pretty successful people, and some of them are pretty brilliant. I don't put myself in that category. But, uh, oh, what's his name? Einstein was very dyslexic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you think outside of the box a little bit. And so a lot of things that has happened to me has really been a blessing, especially as a coach and a teacher. I could work with kids that were having disabilities and kind of understood where they were coming from. Right. And uh, it's just a a learning disability, but also it's a gift. Everything I've told you, everything I've told you has been a gift. Dyslexia was a gift. Uh, because of dyslexia, kids picked on me. My mother made me fight. I became quite a fighter and took control of my life. Mm-hmm. But the Crohn's disease, there's no cure for it. I did a lot of things outside the box. I took some, they said, you know, no roughage, no spicy foods. I did everything everything they was telling me, and I was dying. So some lady from Texas suggested that I do some things differently, and I did. And uh, then with some other things piled on, uh, you can go to my website and get a lot of the stuff of georgeamsteel.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, but the um, the uh, the trail of surviving Crohn's disease when they give me six months to live and and uh, you know it's pretty devastating. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just another you know gift because now I can talk to people about health and how to overcome different challenges, learning disabilities. Uh, uh, I can talk to people about my trip with Jesus Christ. I don't push it on them. I don't puke it on them. I just drop a seed, and if they want to talk more, we can. If not, it's up to anyhow. And, you know, Christians, some of them really bear hard on people. Mm-hmm. I think that all you can do is plant a seed and it becomes between the person you're talking to and Jesus. Uh, right. A man can save nobody. <laughs> right, right. But I'm positioned to talk to a few people. Yep. And then, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Everything that that was negative, as you look back at it, was a gift, if that makes any sense. It does. It does. And and I never compare anybody's journey. It's not at all fair, nor is it the same. But I would say that it, many people in all situations, but especially athletes, and you're a significant athlete, look back and connect the dots forward, right, uh, and say that everything – you know, I used to have a question on my show. What's your biggest failure? And I took it out in about five shows. There were no failures. People could not reflect back. Athletes could not reflect back on failures. They 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 embraced it and they figured out. Well, I got no 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 no. I disagree with that totally. Okay okay. How so? I think it's still a great question you should ask. Yeah. Because people tend to put their failures out of their mind, uh-huh. but the failure is a huge part of the growth. Right. When you fail, you learn more than when you're successful. True. So I think it's, I think failure, I mean, I failed in elementary school every day in school. Right. It made me stronger. I failed, you know, a lot of things, but they made me stronger. I, 
I know I think failure's a good thing. Right, and I understand. Maybe I said it the the, the wrong in the wrong context. I I, I do no. be, believe it's 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 right. It's it's an opportunity to really understand who you are and how you're going to respond. You know, of course, looking back when you're a little older, but how you respond. That's how we know. Looking back makes it easier, believe me. Yeah, (laughs) I'll bet. I'll bet. Well, no, and I I appreciate the the clarification there. Now, did did you, the friends that back then, I mean, it sounds like it was a very frustrating learning experience, but frustrating elementary school. Do you you still have friends from back in that time period? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, We go to our class reunions. A lot of it's based around my wife. She had more friends yeah. than me. <laughs> uh, but uh, as, as things went on, uh, you know, two, year, two years ago, three years ago, I got a phone call in, uh, oh, it must have been October. No, it was more like, it was more like July that they were going to name the stadium after me where I coached for 25 years. And that's pretty humbling. Yeah, that is. And so they're telling me about this, and I and I told the guy he was the president of the school board. I said, I don't think you should do that. He said, Why not? He says, A lot of people think we should. I said, Well, I think those kind of honors should be held until after somebody dies. Hmm. And I was thinking of Joe Paterno, who was a great, great coach at Penn State, and that little scandal happened, and all of a sudden they had a statue made of him, (laughs) and they tore it down as he was dying. Right. Oh, jeez. So you know, it's kind of brutal. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but it was also very humbling, and they did do it. They, the stadium, and I went in. Uh, and they, they said, "Well, we're going to do it regardless if you come or not, but we'd like to take part in it." Yeah. So naturally, I took part in of it. Of course, of course, and and everything you say, I can hear it in your voice. A very, very humble man, and I and I really respect the candor that that you're, uh, I guess, you're sharing with us right now. Now, you mentioned four sports. I am curious, what sports did you play? Well, I'd like to say ping pong. <laughs> Croquet. I, 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 was, I was lettered four years in uh, football. Okay. I was a captain two years. The last year we were undefeated, 1955. Um, I was, uh, believe it or not, lettered four years in basketball. Mm-hmm. I was 6'2", but back then there was no three-second rule, so I could, I could own, own the center of the court <laughs> and become a push-shove deal, so I was pretty good at that. <laughs> And then I played first base in baseball and had an opportunity to sign with a couple of major league teams oh, really? before I went to Michigan State. And then I was a shot putter in, in track, and every now and then would run the 100-yard dash, which I was pretty quick for my size. One time they stuck me in the mile, and I ran about a quarter mile and thought, no, I can do better than this. And I went over and started warming up for the shot put. <laughs> yeah, interesting. <laughs> those were my four sports. Yeah. Basketball, football, baseball, and track. I'm curious. You brought up baseball. Why? Why turn down the the potential opportunity of of going further in that sport at that time? Well, uh, very simple. Um, baseball. I was married. Okay. I wasn't going to sign. I wasn't going to the majors. I was going to go to you know a minor league team, and there was no money involved in that. There's no way at all. Of course, there was no money involved in college either. Right. If you didn't make it, there was no future in baseball. And if you did make it, there was a future in football where I could make at that time five or six thousand dollars a year. <laughs> That's what the guys are making. Yeah. But um, college just made a whole lot more sense to me, even though I wasn't prepared for it. Okay. If I, if I would have went to baseball, you know, back then, it was, you know, what do you do? Right. Uh, who would have thought I'd end up in the space coach as a, uh, a space scholar and, and the uh, 
Kennedy program, right. which I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> People ask me, they say, well, what did you, what did you teach? And I tell them nuclear science, <laughs> I love it. which is a form of physical education. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way I looked at it when I was in school. Sure. Absolutely. I live in the space coast. What do you think? Exactly. See, we're, see we're, we are the smart kids. Uh, interesting. And now, now so, so you go to college. Pat, Pat is also attending college with you? No, 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 no. no. She had to, they gave me a full ride scholarship. Okay. That wasn't it. Duffy Doherty was the coach. And when I, before I ever started, they told me, they said, you know, that two can live as cheaply as one, is what Duffy told me. Okay. He said, only half as long. <laughs> Do the math. This is your, this so is anyhow, your freshman year uh, in college advice. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, the first six months I was there, they have a, 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 a hotel program, which is huge. And I stayed at the, the uh, it's like the Hotel Hilton, but it was the Michigan State's uh, teaching quarters, which is a beautiful hotel. That's okay. where I live. Okay. Um, they they uh, was working on a, some new... Uh, new dormitories for, for married people, married housing. And they told me that as soon as Spartan Village opened up, I'd be the first one to move in there. Hmm. I mean, they were excited, you know, because of the football, they were excited about getting me. Yeah. But they didn't tell me that was a big secret, so they sent in the local paper. Uh, back then was the Detroit New uh, Free Press. No, Detroit, uh, oh, what was it called? Golly, Pete. It's no longer exists, but it was, uh, they uh, sent the reporter in and, they took a picture of me and my wife and my child uh, talking about me going to Michigan State. Hmm. And uh, they asked me where I was going to live. And I said, well, Spartan Village. What I didn't know, I told you I screwed up a lot. <laughs> what I didn't know is I had a waiting list of about 400 married people on campus waiting to get into the Spartan Village. Oh, no. I thought I was the first one to move in. <laughs> so they almost fired the uh, housing director before I got there. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that was happening. <laughs> Come on, you can only so laugh anyhow, looking back. <laughs> but I was one of the. I was, I think, the very first one to move into Spartan Village. He kept their word, and I think the uh, housing director kept his job by the skin of his teeth. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, things like that happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. By, by the way, if you hear anything in the background, it's not me wrestling. That's thunder, a thunderstorm above me. Well, where are you at? Yeah, we're in New Jersey right now, where okay. I'm spending some time with my father-in-law and the family, Great. and uh, we're having Great. a good time. But these storms have been rolling in and out, and so I just wanted to let you know there's nothing crazy going on in the background here. Okay. Uh, well, so so we're... we're the, playing football, now you spent a year, I know you never saw it down, but you did, you were on the team, correct? Oh, all the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, it, kept, it, my, they it, kept my scholarship. I mean, Duffy was loyal to me. Duffy, yeah. if there's anything you can say about Duffy Doherty, yeah. he was like a father figure and he was loyal. Yeah. And the other guy that helped me get through Michigan State was my enrollment officer. Um, golly, I can't think of the name right now. Age is a thing, too, you know. Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, Niemeyer, Roy Niemeyer. Okay. And he just, uh, they looked at they realized that there was something wrong, but he also realized that I had pretty good basic intelligence. Mm-hmm. And so they set it up for me to take some of my classes orally. And I could talk all day, and I can answer questions. What they found of people with dyslexia, yeah, they might not be able to put it on paper, but they got great memories. Interesting. So that was, that was my, my, you know, so I could, I could sit in class and remember what they're telling me. I couldn't put it on paper. And uh, but when they want to sit down in the office and talk to me, I could talk their ears off and answer all their questions. Right, 
Right. <laughs> I became a, a a doable guy. I mean, I, I graduated, uh, and I also I hate to say this, but I had great visual vision when they were doing some of the tests. I could I could do uh, true and false and uh, and uh, multiple choice pretty good with my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible guy. I guess I cheated a little bit, <laughs> but I did that in wrestling too, so it's all right. Right, right. Now you're you're growing up. There's this, uh, as you mentioned, you know, stay away from the fight. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm just repeating back words, but you know, going home upset, not not conf- confronting anybody, and until that real that one day where basically mommy you, made me do it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and would, would, would did it did it feel Natural. I mean, a lot of people would say that. I mean, if I've been in a situation even close to that where it's just pent up, and it no, I knew out. I knew that something was wrong. Yeah, I knew that something was wrong. I didn't know what it was. Yeah, I knew that I wasn't as normal as other people. I knew that I had some kind of challenges. I didn't know what they were. Yeah. I didn't you know. I just I, I didn't want any. You know, if I if my nose was running, I would put my uh, take a sleeve in my arm and, and wipe it off. Yeah. Rather than blow a nose, I didn't want any. I didn't want any attention pointed on me. I hated it. Yeah. I, if I could shut my eyes and just disappear, that would have been great. Hmm. Uh, it was. I mean, it, I hated it. I absolutely hated getting up and going to school. Yeah. I hated it, and I was frustrated. And it was. Oh, it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. So, so uh, and high school gave me the athletic outlet. Exactly. So exactly. I was very accepted by the kids because it was a good athlete right but i still knew something was wrong i didn't know what but i knew something wasn't right yeah i was about to get into that for a second so on the diamond inside the the gym and of course on the gridiron was that an outlet for you or was it a temporary one it was an outlet and you know what i'm gonna tell you something i was still frustrated getting out of height out of college yeah They, they got me going in the right direction but i still didn't know really what all was going on yeah and professional wrestling was an outlet for me and my wife and my family, but professional wrestling was an outlet for me mm-hmm. physically. If not, I might've killed somebody. Yeah. I mean, I was a tough guy and I was looking for fights. Well, when I could get rid of that energy in the ring and they wouldn't put me in jail for that, that was a whole lot better. Right. <laughs> and you get paid and, for uh, it. <laughs> and if, 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 there, if, there, if God wasn't in control, yeah. if you look at these things, like I said, backwards through the rear view mirror, yeah. It doesn't make sense unless you look at it that way. Yep. Because there's no way that I could have survived. No way whatsoever. No way that my marriage could have survived. No way that that I could have got through college. There's no way that I could have coached for 25 years. Yeah. There's no way that I could have had the success that I had in wrestling on a part-time basis. Nobody else has ever done that. Everybody else is wrestling you know, full-time. I was three months big time and the other time in school teaching and uh, I was able to do what I love to do uh, because of the wrestling and I made a lot of money because of the wrestling and it changed my life but basically it was just uh, it was meant to be Mm -hmm. there's no way that anyone else could have done what I did uh, with the WWF 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 and later on the WWE. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just crazy when I look back. It, it is crazy. And I say, you know, yeah. I was not a wrestling fan. I'm not a wrestling guy, but I love professional wrestling. Yeah. I respect it. 
because of the showmanship involved and the uh, the way that the business has changed a lot. Back when I was wrestling, uh, nothing was really choreographed. We uh, it was predetermined who was going to win. Okay. But we didn't know how we were going to get that. That was that was done in the ring, which really takes an art and some talent. Yeah, I can imagine. And uh, so it's just you know, I mean, it's just uh, people ask me, "What do you think about wrestling today?" It's not the, it's not the same. Mm-hmm. It might be better. I don't know. Uh, professional wrestling, thanks to Vince McMahon Jr., is the top production in all of wrestling. It's amazing. You look at their opening, the fireworks, and all this stuff. Yeah. And you look at the Super Bowl. With their production and their opening. Yeah. Which production's the best? Yeah. And who's copying who? Exactly. I agree. <laughs> NBA, the All Star Game, there's the championship games with the lights flashing and for the cha- for the playoffs and, and who's copying who? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, come on, now baseball they go back in the uh, in the locker room and they interview guy who's in it for you know, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Wrestling's at the track for everything. It's true. No, it's true. I have fond memories of, of all of that. All of that. Now, now, you, you... now, now the next question I'm always asked is, well, yeah. what about the athletes? Right. I think that they are much better athletes now than what we were. Yeah. I think there's no question about that. Yes. The downside of it is, I think we were much tougher, tougher people, and tougher, more grit. Mm-hmm. I like what they have now because most of it's given to them now. Right. And we had to, it was a totally different business. So let's not even go there. Just, yeah. yeah of course. I respect them as great athletes and that uh, the promotion is fantastic and the uh, production is what it's really all about. Yeah. It's like circus coming to town. Yep. It really is. I am curious, and I, and I love these stories, and, and, and seriously, I love the, the, the back and forth as well because it's great. You're always looking for a fight, but you're also coaching and teaching. And mm-hmm. I, tell me if I'm wrong here, but based on just a short time together and, and, and reading a little bit about your life so far, I, I'm feeling as though when you're in front of those students, though, uh, that, that other things just went to the side and that there was a relationship there because of kind of your struggles um, that you're talking about right now and that you faced. Is that, is that a true statement? How were you as a coach? This is, this is really a great question, and it's hindsight. And it's, uh, I had a young man that never played for me, but was in my gym classes, come over the other day with his wife, and I have this happen a lot. And, and he was telling me, he says, you know, your expectations from each and every one of us are so high and so legit that everybody respected you because you you had high expectations, but you were fair to everybody. And what I didn't tell, I told you about Roy Niemeyer, my, my enrollment officer at Michigan State. Correct. My junior year, there was a job opening up at the Boys Vocational School at the State Reform School where kids were in for anything from rape, murder, or whatever. And a lot of guys were trying to get that job. Roy Niemeyer recommended me to those people to go over, and I went over and interviewed for the job. We've got a lot of these kids that are misfits in society lined up along the line, and I'm walking through interviewing for the job, and I hear this rumble. I know it's coming. (laughs) Finally, some kid yelled, because at this time, I'm only like 22. What do they get you for, Moose? (laughs) (laughs) I thought, oh, boy, here we go. (laughs) Because I fought all over Detroit. I I had a bad reputation as a kid. Right. And uh, everybody knew it pretty much. Except I kind of tried to hide it when I was in college, but I figured that blew the job. <laughs> and the uh, the uh, 
superintendent of schools later on, this, he was the athletic director. This time he took me in his office. He said, Jim, he says, we've had a lot of goody-goody two-shoes that are good people to apply for this job. He said, I'm going to hire you. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, well, he says, I think you understand these kids more than most people, and you'll know what they're going through, and you'll have a good relationship with them. Hmm. So they hired me. On my first day in the job, he told me, he called me aside. He said, now, listen, physically, don't ever touch one of these kids, ever. Hmm. And this is absolutely necessary. And then deck him. Huh. He said, don't just reach out and pat him on the shoulder or something like that. He said, deck him. He said, the reason I'm telling you that, because it will come up here. You will be challenged. If you don't handle it right, you'll be challenged often. We'll have to fire you. But if you deck the first one, and they're only here six months, the reputation and the rumor will go on and on and on as long as you're working here. <laughs> so, you know, three months into the job, it happened, and I, you know, I did what I was told to do, and I never had another incident, really. It was a second incident. I covered that in my book. But basically, right. uh, me, working with these kids, I, I learned to love these kids. And not only that, uh, it was great working there because I didn't have to deal with parents. Oh, yeah. I know. When I went to a public school, it's a whole new ball game. And yeah. holy cow, everybody knew more about what I was doing than I did, I thought. <laughs> or they thought. Right. So, yeah, but it was, uh, that was another part of my, my training was teaching at the reform school. Actually, I was a recreation director, but dealing with those kids. Yeah. Got me ready. Yeah, it did. God did that. And why would they hire a guy like me? <laughs> what did he get you for? I love that. I can see that. Now, not everybody gets a, a stadium named after them, and that's not really the point. I know that you brought that up, and it's just an honor, and I and I completely agree. But uh, but but you're a coach for a long time, and what what are some of the keys to success in that job? I mean, you have multiple oh, roles. Very simple. Have great kids. Yeah. If you don't have great kids, you you know you struggle. Mm-hmm. I started the Madison High School wrestling program from scratch in 1966. No one had ever wrestled in amateur wrestling mm-hmm. in the school district, and I'm teaching at the same school where I went to school. We didn't talk about that either. Mm-hmm. Think about the dummy coming back and teaching where he went right. to school. The teachers that are still there, we got a whole other can of worms. <laughs> but anyhow, I start I start the uh, program from scratch. 1966 and 1969, we win the state championship. Wow. That tells you the kind of kids I had. Yeah. And they would run through walls for me, and I worked them hard. But I had great kids. Yeah. That's what coaching's all about. It's not about I do or that, that, that. It's a bunch of nonsense. Yeah. No, that's a good point. If you don't have great kids, you don't have success. That's a good point. Well, what's your definition of a great kid? Because that does that is important sometimes of a coach who maybe chooses uh, A great kid to me. Is one that's disciplined, that's got a, a mean streak in them, and a loving streak in them, and uh, that'll run through walls for success. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I've had some guys where parents where they come to me and said, I'm not going to let my kid wrestle anymore or play football because he's not very good. Right. And I've told him, I said, well, I'll tell you what, let me be the dad, you stay away for a while, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's not, about the, it's not about the little league crap, it's not about any of that at all. Yeah. 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 No, it's... And it's not a knock at little league, don't you? No. I, I guess it is, but it is. Well, Parents get in the way there. Yeah, it's it's true, Jim, and I, I will say I've spent 
almost close to two decades working in youth sports. And, and mm-hmm. listen, I'm not an expert, but I, I believe in the way that I grew up, which was, hey, the role of the parent is to sometimes, maybe not even this, but get you to practice if you need a ride or whatever it may be. But I'm always a big fan of getting there yourself. And then uh, you know, let the coach take over. And if you don't like it, then, then you move to a different program or you make it a teachable moment. But it's not, it's not you step in. And well, whenever a parent gets involved in the kids' program, whether it be music, uh, football, baseball, base, you know, little league baseball, or whatever it is, when they get involved, yeah. overly involved, they hurt the kid. Yeah, and that's who they hurt. Yeah, when they put too much pressure on the kid, and, and most of these guys, often they were not very good athletes themselves, and they're trying to relive it through their, you know, through their kid. Exactly. Just sit back and shut up. Yeah. Yeah, and I told some of them that too. Yeah, you, you have to. I had a simple well, rule. Yeah, <laughs> I had a simple rule in baseball or in any sport, really, that if you're you do something as a child, whatever age it may be, young athlete, and you look immediately over to your parents for their reaction, we have a problem. Yeah. we have yeah. a real problem. So, Jim, I'm curious what what was your first job? My first job? Yeah. Ever? Yeah, if you remember, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was in uh, high school. Uh, hadn't graduated yet. It was uh, just before I was going to Michigan State. I worked with an engineering firm. Okay. My football coach got me the job, and uh, it was pretty neat. I learned a lot there. Yeah. Uh, but, that, you know, it was an engineering firm. And I, even before that, I wheeled cement when I was 14 years old. Okay. I was big and strong, you know. I could do that, and I, I, I mean, I can remember wheeling cement through for a basement with three or four of us. We had big guys. I was yeah. the youngest one, and uh, we get eight dollars for the day. <laughs> <laughs> I was glad to get it. Of course, <laughs> things are different then. Yeah, but those are good. Those are good learning situations too. Yeah, uh, always, always. In 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 when you mentioned engineer, I mean, what were you doing? If you don't mind me asking. Well, you know those uh, where they have a periscope on a tripod, yeah, and somebody's holding the stick. Oh yeah, I held the stick. The ones that hold up traffic all the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I held the stick. That's I was great. A stick holder. <laughs> hey, it's more than I was doing at that age. So. Well, if I, you know, I, later on I learned how to hide the stick and use it as a foreign object. <laughs> You gotta have fun. You gotta have fun. Oh, that's you know what? If you don't have a sense of humor, you shouldn't teach. You should, I don't know what you should do if you don't have a sense of humor. Agreed, completely. I mean, agree. Everything that happens in the school situation, you can either get mad at it at the parents, or you can look at the humor and laugh at it and try to reason with somebody. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I, mean, I hate the word try because you just do it. Reason yeah, with what they don't know. Well, that's how we start off this uh, interview today. Yeah. <laughs> I said the word try exactly. and immediately I'm corrected so me, which sure. I appreciate it. Even even well, I, Yoda I told us been, that. I hope it's been helpful for you. It has been. Do you have any more questions? I, I have a couple more, if you don't mind. I know you're you're a busy man. I could always call you back and and but I'm, I'd I, like to get them done this time. Uh, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Um, I did. What I what was? I, just if you don't mind sharing with with Pat and your kids as they get older. What was there any? Was there total support? I know you had mentioned some choices and some tough times and. Um, but, but what, what was some of the toughest times for you? You're, you're, you're dual, you have this dual role in life as you become a professional wrestler. Well, and, prior to that, yeah. probably, uh, going to college with no money, 
our pets, parents, and my parents helped us with that. And every week they'd come up with what we called a care package of some food. And when we first went, we lived out in Williamston, Michigan, in a, an apartment, a second story apartment that was like, uh, it was three rooms, like three phone booths. Mm-hmm. And we had Plisha, our daughter, and myself, and, and Pat, and it was like a Thursday or Friday, and we were totally broke. No parents, no money, no nothing. And uh, we had one can, one jar of Gerber's baby food, chopped uh, our smooth uh, carrots. We had a strip of bacon, and uh, that was it. Mm. Nothing to eat. And uh, it was like in March, and I was walking out in the back of this place, second story. I probably didn't leave long out back, but I was. And as I'm walking around, I see this here miracle that had survived the winter. It was a hard, stiff cabbage. It was shining through the snow. Hmm. So I ripped that up and I took it upstairs to Pat. And I said, look what I found. <laughs> and we had, a, you know, she brought a, her dog with her in that cotton. <laughs> and uh, so we uh, boiled the, she boiled the uh, cabbage. We fed Felicia the, the, the carrots, Rivers carrots. Pat and I split the cabbage and the dog got the bacon. Hmm. Her parents come the next day with some food. The dog went home with them. <laughs> Nobody gets the bacon on me. Come on. <laughs> so that was a pretty tough time. We had a few of those kind of things. Felicia yeah. used to have a, uh, as a little girl, two and three years old, going to college. Yeah. She had a beautiful silver bank with a screw in the bottom. <laughs> yeah. And she was taught to go around and hold that bank on people put nickels and dimes and quarters in it and that would be our dairy queen for the week hmm. <laughs> hmm. things were tough they yeah. were real tough and you know they were tough first few years of teaching and coaching and things were tough we didn't have any money you know four thousand three hundred dollars a year and uh then i started making it a little bit wrestling and I, my first matches started i graduated in 61 i started wrestling in 63. Okay. So there was two years with nothing, except I can't say that. I I, man, I, I umpired Little League Baseball. Okay. I did uh, recreation night on Wednesday night. I worked at the high school for the uh, varsity events. I went from junior high the first two years in 61 and 63. I went to the high school as the uh, assistant football coach and gym teacher there. And... Uh, Wrestling made the difference financially. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of guys, here's the other part of it. You know, I had to wrestle. A lot of teachers back then did other things for income, sell insurance. Okay. Can you imagine a guy with dyslexia selling your insurance? <laughs> I mean, that'd be a joke. Right. So, you know, what were they going to do? I had to make some extra money, and wrestling was about the only thing I could have done, right. honestly. Back. Right. And I wasn't a wrestling fan. Thank God for Dave Pierce for talking me into it. Yeah. Yeah, in the traveling, in the money. Did yeah. that? Did that? I mean, those are two things you hadn't done before, at least from I'm understanding. Uh, you're leaving your family, and then of course now you have a lot more money. Now that's not always a blessing for some people. Um, well, let me tell you, I was gone every summer. Yeah. I coached both of my kids in high school, both of boys, not my daughter. Okay. You know, she was, back then, the girls weren't as active. I wish she would have been because 
she'd have been a great athlete. Right. But I coached both of my sons. In the summertime, they would come out to the Northeast. Pat would drive with the kids and spend three, four weeks with me, and I'd only be there 12 weeks. So they went up down the East Coast with me. The boys loved to go in the locker room with the wrestlers and so on and so forth. I never, I let them know right away it was a show. And, uh, you know, if somebody ever says your dad's a pony, just tell them your dad could beat up their dad. He could go on with it. Forget about it. <laughs> and uh, they knew how to tape my, my foreign object, so it'd stick them. I mean, it was, it was a family experience, really. Yeah. Okay. That's great to hear. A lot, a lot of guys, uh, wrestling people, uh, Kate babe their, their, their kids and their family because they thought they might not respect them if they found out the nature of the business. Right. Oh, do you remember what George Steele was like before he went real goofy? <laughs> no. You don't want your kids to believe that's it. <laughs> right, right. So, okay. Uh, you, ever, you ever injured at all? Do you ever have serious injuries from, from your athletic days, including wrestling, of course? Mm, I had a couple, but not, you know, nothing. Nothing. Major. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty I impressive. Lost my le- I almost lost my left leg. Oh, well, that counts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, was it in in sports or was it just because of other in wrestling? In wrestling. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I used to do a thing that some people think is pretty original. I've seen Flair do something similar where he hits the turnbuckle and kind of does a flip over the side. Okay. Lands on the apron. Yeah. Believe it or not, I used to go into the going totally backwards into the turnbuckle. Yeah. Put both one hand on the left ropes, one hand on the right ropes, and elevate myself over the post hmm. to the floor. Wow. Almost impossible to do now. Yeah, right. Even then, it was pretty athletic. And uh, I, I came back to Detroit because I'd done it in the Northeast. And everybody would come out to see this new kid that's no longer wearing the mask, a big, big star in, you know, in New York and so on. They come out to watch my match. So I'm showing off. And I have them throw me in the turnbuckle, and I do the double boom, and I go over the post, and being I do that big flip. When I forgot, in Detroit, they had wraparound steps mm. around the post. Yeah. So in New York, the steps are one on either the right or the left. In Detroit, they wrapped around, so my leg hit first, oh. and I smashed it open to the bone. Oh. But I didn't, and I thought it broke my leg. So I'm down there, I'm kicking, though, it's all right. I get in the ring, now there's blood all over the place. And I think, I'm asking him, did I hurt you? Did I hurt you? It was my blood. Right. And when I pull my leotards down, it was like a two and a half inch gap, Oof. two inches long, right to the bone. And they started pouring the thigh to lay down it and started sewing it from the top. And I said, no, 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 no. It's not going to one of these athletic commission doctors. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm going to the uh, hospital. Yeah. I went home, got my wife, and she drove me to the hospital. My shoes full of blood. We go in there, and they take about four and a half hours to put this thing back together, layer by layer by layer. And the doctor told me, he said, if you'd have let them go on like they were, you'd have had gangrene in two weeks and lost your leg. Yeah, yeah, that's. So that you know, that was a bad one. It was a show-off thing. <laughs> I did it. Well, I showed him I could do that. Exactly. But I, you know what? I never did it again. Yeah. Yeah, that was Whether a, it was wraparound stiffs or not, screw that move. I didn't need it. <laughs> in fact, I, I, I rarely left the floor of the ring. Yeah, that's smart. I'm thinking. I saw. <laughs> guys are getting on the top rope. I didn't, I didn't get on the bottom rope. Come on. <laughs> You're a wise man. <laughs> wise man. Well, i leave you with this last question. I'll let you go. i I got to ask. You've been in two movies, Ed Wood and South of Haven. And 
what what's the experience like? I mean, you, you've had these opportunities, as you mentioned before, especially oh. looking back. And here you are in a movie, Johnny Depp, the whole bit. And I know this is a little bit of a part of the interview here just to have some fun. But uh, what, what was that experience like? I mean, I am curious. Well, I get a phone call from Tim Burton, one of the top Hollywood producers and, and directors in the business. And he tells me that they've been looking for a person to play this role of Tor Johnson, who I never heard of. And uh, everybody keeps pointing at me, and he doesn't know if he wants to use an actor or a, or a wrestler. He says, but uh, everybody keeps pointing to you. He says, I met with him. He told me I was too short. And later on, he decided to go with me, and they had some shoes made that elevated me another five inches. Who are you, Nation? Our guest is ready to go inside the locker room. Are you... Gain exclusive access to the story as well as those from all of our guests. Visit whoareyousports.com where there is a page dedicated especially for all of our listeners at Who Are You Nation. Until next time, please remember both in sports and in life that it's not all about the scoreboard so much as it is about our dedication to becoming a better teammate, healthier person, and adopting an efforts over results mindset.